Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I tell my daughter who's 15, she thinks about college, even though I'm not as in favor of college as many people know. But oh, Wait, hold on, hold on, dude. <laughs> To, to not talk your daughter out of college. I, I know you teach at NYU. You run a bunch of companies. You sold a bunch of companies. You failed at some companies. Yeah. You were on the board of the New York Times. But I just think college has become such a scam. I agree with you. But here's the bottom line. There's very little downside. Are we allowed to curse on this show, by yeah, the way? Yeah, of course. I just don't mean that many really successful people in their 30s or 40s who went to a top 20 school and say, you know what? I really fucked up going to Stanford. I, I hear that never. And... <laughs> Some people might say college has become too expensive. I get it. College is not for everyone. Hands down, it's not. But if you're in a position to go to a good slash great school as a young person in this economy, by all means, get to college. And if you happen to be Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg and you are so exceptional that you drop out of Harvard in your second year, fine. But assuming you are Bill Gates is a really bad strategy. I think it's important early on to have a code. So take this back to unimportant stuff, business. What do all Fortune 500 CEOs have in common? Or I would say 450 of them when you meet them, and I met a lot of them. They're really likable. Even the ones that are also psychopaths. Psychopathic, yeah. yeah. During the day, these people are Darwin and Darth Vader. Make no mistake about it. They, they play full body contact business and they make very brutal decisions. They dominate markets, they put companies out of business. And they don't put warning labels on your iPad, even though your kid has a crack-like addiction to the thing, right? So they're just better at this than anybody else. That's such an important thing. Like having a vision that is bigger or more interesting than the vision of the people around you, that's a winning path to success. FreshBooks is excited to announce the launch of an all-new version of their cloud accounting software to help the self-employed. Create and send professional-looking invoices in less than 30 seconds. Set up online payments with just a couple of clicks and get paid up to four times faster. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial at freshbooks.com James and enter the James Altucher Show in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's freshbooks.com James. So excited to have Scott Galloway on the podcast. Scott just wrote the book, The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. 
And Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm a, I can legitimately say I'm a fan. I tell my kids in my class that uh, they need to sweat every day to be happy. I think you originally coined yeah. that phrase about 10 years ago. Yeah, it's a, it's a true phrase. Now, yeah. I do want to talk about Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. Yep. They're the, the four most amazing companies in history. And you start off the book beautifully by saying, here's what's good about each of these companies. But then the book gets darker and darker <laughs> about them. And so let's, let's, and then uh, worthwhile mentioning, you've run a bunch of companies, you sold a bunch of companies, you failed at some companies, yeah. you teach at NYU. See, what, I, what I'm interested in with this is what makes a good company also makes a good person. And hmm. I kind of wanted to address that in this book because the audience doesn't necessarily want to know who's going to win Apple or Facebook. The audience wants to know what's going to make them better. When I was reading that, I was thinking about just myself personally these are what can make anybody good at mm -hmm. anything. These are features that are universal. They're not just applicable to Apple or, or Amazon or Facebook. So, um, so those are kind of the things I want to talk about. So lots of things to talk about. First, what are the good things about Amazon? Oh, just an inspiration. I think Jeff Bezos is arguably the most forward-looking visionary in business. And on a very practical, tactical level, Amazon is the largest recruiter out of my class. Really? I would not have guessed that uh, that Amazon was still at this day and age the biggest recruiter out of your class. Oh yeah, so uh, briefly started a bunch of companies. One of them went public in 2002, decided to change my life and pursue a lifelong uh, dream of teaching. On the day of the IPO, resigned from the board, company was red envelope and joined the faculty at NYU where I've taught now 6,200 students in one of two classes, brand strategy and digital marketing, and been on the faculty there 15 years. 10 years ago, the number one recruiter out of my class was American Express. And it was a tie for number two among all the bulge bracket investment banks. Now, far and away, the number one recruiter out of my class is Amazon. Far and away, what does that mean? Well, the number two gives offers to half the students at Amazon. Amazon is a hiring machine right now. So I personally feel a lot of gratitude towards Amazon. I think. Well, let me address that because sure. you also mentioned how Amazon is investing and they're patenting lots of technologies that will eliminate jobs. And, and you oh, yeah. point out that... Uh, 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 a scary photograph would be, because we haven't seen yeah. one, a scary photograph would yeah. be the inside of an Amazon warehouse because yeah. it's all it's all robots now and not people. Which to be fair, who the hell wants to uh, be stacking packages at an Amazon warehouse? What, what's Amazon recruiting your students for? For what I'll call information age jobs, managers, product managers, business development, um, you know, trying to figure out distribution strategies, marketing strategies. It's a great time to be remarkable. And that is, if you go to, mm. I describe NYU Stern as one of the 15 top 10 business schools. You know, there's 15 of us who all claim we're top 10. And people believe, or companies believe, that anyone who can go to a top 10 business school is remarkable. And so there's no shortage of jobs for them. The scary part, and this is not, this is not unusual in terms of a cycle of innovation, is that for every kid that gets a great job out of my class at Amazon at 110 or $120,000 a year, are there three or four assistant manager jobs at the Gap or at Tesco or at Kroger's that are going away. So it's a complicated story. Amazon has a lot of amazing features around it. It's created a lot of wealth for a lot of people. But over the long term, can a company this dominant, are markets failing? Are markets failing when one company can take the value of any consumer stock down 10 to 30% in 30 days, which I believe Amazon can, 
just with press releases or not even press releases, just going on background and say, we're thinking about going into drugstores. And then the two largest drugstore companies in America declined four to 5%, the opening bell. And by the closing bell, the manufacturer's brands of drug companies have declined two to 3%. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a story which is not quite mentioned in this book, um, although it's, you, you allude to it in various ways. You really talk about um, how Amazon has, and 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 by the way, we're gonna we're gonna veer into the how the qualities of these companies again are qualities that everybody, even individually, can aspire to. But you talk about how Amazon has eroded the value of of brands because it's not so important that you have consumer mental space because we've outsourced our mental space to search engines. So. And Amazon is what? The third largest search engine just by itself? I mean, there's like Google and YouTube, which is owned by Google, and then yeah. there's Amazon. And number and one Amazon is number search. one for products. Yeah, that's right. So, so, so a company I'm, I'm very familiar with, uh, and they just actually raised about 100 million from, from, among others, Google. What they do is they take these 100-year-old brands that never developed a digital strategy because they were always just selling into Walmart and big box stores, and they never had any problem. They had always the deals. For, for 70 years, they had deals with, with stores. But, and they felt that brand was important. This, this friend's company goes to the same manufacturer, says, make me the same product. I'm gonna slap my name on it instead of the, these other companies' names, these 100-year-old companies' names. And then they figure out all the algorithms and they dominate Amazon's search engine. I've seen them take a 100-year-old brand and completely eliminate it from the front end of Am from the front page of Amazon search within 48 hours sure. and then just dominate all the product sales after that. And so so it's fascinating that Amazon is not only kind of subtracting from, you know, all these different workplaces like Kroger's, you know, and 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 even the even the stock prices of all these places just with a word, but if you can have a sense of how branding works and how the Amazon search works, you can destroy 100-year-old companies within 2 days. So the era of what I would call brand is a de the default right strategy to create shareholder value. The sun has passed midday on that. The algorithm for creating billions of dollars in shareholder value from the end of World War II to the introduction of Google was the following. Take an average product, an average beer, an average soda, an average soap, and wrap it in these incredible associations of patriotism or likable or European elegance, and then stuff the channel with it. And we would defer to the brand because we didn't have these weapons of mass diligence to find the best hotel in London. We didn't have these weapons of diligence to find farm weapons to table. Weapons of dual diligence, I like that. We didn't have weapons of mass diligence. We didn't have the ability to find the best local kefir yogurt curdled in, in Brooklyn. But now amazing products break through because at the end of the day, all of these amazing platforms allow us to share and allow us to discover really easily. So when I was working for Morgan Stanley back in the late 80s and I was going to London on a business trip, I'd either stay at the Ritz-Carlton or the Four Seasons, one, because someone else was paying for it, and two, they were always a solid seven or eight. But now using TripAdvisor, using uh, my social graph, using Google, I can find a smaller hotel that hits me perfectly at a nine or 10. People no longer say, what's the best restaurant in New York? They say, what's the hot new restaurant? And they can find it in about 0. 0.0005 seconds on Google. So this seems like a, a very, a very good thing because branding at the heart of yep. it, I will accuse brands of basically lying. It's like you're saying you're taking an average cup of soda yep. and you're and you're spending a billion dollars and now it's Coca-Cola. Yep. And this is not offensive to Coca-Cola. I'm just using yep. an example. 
But uh, I think the same thing is happening with personal branding. You can no longer, and we see this now with kind of the daily news reports about different people, you can no longer hide. Like you are who you are, what you see is what you get. And there's lots of tools for figuring that out. And so a new approach to building yourself up or building a brand up or building a company up has has to happen. I mean, that's you, you do this on a daily basis when you advise companies. Well, if you look at the companies adding, the consumer products companies adding billions of dollars in value, uh, they're A, taking share from the big guys who have rest on the fact that the majority of the world needed to defer to the shorthand of brand. So the sea of the unknown that we use brand to get across that sea has narrowed and we can see the other side with these bridges of due diligence. We can find the best product. So, And by bridges of due diligence, Google, you, you Google. Amazon reviews. I shave my head. I used to always defer to the brands of Norelco or Braun or Wall, but now I can go on Google and certain blogs for focused on people who shave their heads and find a retooled Panzer tank factory in East Germany and find an amazing hair clipper and, and have the confidence to buy it. Before we didn't have the confidence to do this because unless it was in our channels of comfort, unless it had a brand giving us some sort of safety, we just wouldn't do it. So we no longer have to defer as quickly to the brand. Brands are built differently now. Now it's more of an algorithm where R&D is the lead as opposed to marketing. So what do the biggest brands in the world or the biggest advertisers in the world have in common now? They're all losing share to companies that typically have a few things in common. One, a better product better ingredients, a focus on a specific indication. Two, they're fantastic at Instagram. Instagram is the new broadcast media. And three, to your point, they optimize light capital distribution, Amazon. If you find me a, a consumer brand that's growing three or 400% a year, they usually have those features in common. So interesting, I wouldn't have said Instagram. I would have said Facebook and Instagram is owned by Facebook. I find that when ever I'm involved in a company that is trying to figure out where to advertise. Yep. You know, they they do first they kind of like try everything, but then ultimately everyone narrows down on Facebook ads. Like that right now. Yeah, now that'll cycle. That's, right. that's one of those things that will cycle. Like it eventually it'll be yeah. Google again or it'll be Amazon. That's but right, right now Facebook seems to be by far the best uh place to advertise. So I'm speaking more specifically of kind of CPG traditional a yogurt an interesting beauty product, something like that. But I agree with you. I think Facebook's scale and targeting is just unrivaled right because now. Because Facebook, know, Google knows a lot about you, but probably, I mean, I don't know about the inner technology, but Facebook, it's it's not just figuring out using AI from how you uh, search for things. Facebook, you actually raise your hand and say, I like this, 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 and this. Yeah. And then from there, Facebook can use AI. Whereas Google's making lots of, smart guesses. They're probably the best company in the world for AI, but Facebook doesn't have to be as smart because you're already saying all the things you like. And then Facebook builds these, you know, lookalike lists to see all the people who look like you. And, yeah. and that's, that's extremely good for targeting. They both have amazing franchises. I mean, F Facebook's more top of the funnel. You've raised your hand and in a public way said, I have teenagers at home that are thinking about driving and I'm, I'm trying to figure out where to buy, buy auto insurance. And Facebook likes to target Households with teens who just got their driver's licenses. At the same time, Google perhaps knows before you know, I'm thinking about a new car or before you've even become cognizant of it. You start searching for new cars. You start searching a lot around Tesla. So they both have unbelievable franchises. So, so, so this, this brings up to the, the very interesting thing that, I, I, that you know, is, is almost a conclusion of the book is that we're sort of 
80% there to where Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google are sort of the same company competing against each other, even though they started from very different roots. Amazon started selling books. Apple started selling computers. Facebook was essentially this combination between Facebook, let's just say, was it was like a, a social, the first social network with verified identity, and Google was a search engine. But now they're all, they all have stacks where, you know, somewhere in the Amazon stack is a great search engine. Somewhere in the Google stack is a cloud, just like Apple and uh, and Amazon. Somewhere in the Facebook stack is, a, you know, a search engine, and you know. I don't know. Facebook's probably the one that's the most different from from these guys. But they buy, they make so many smart acquisitions. You know, they have WhatsApp. They have, you know, so they start competing with Apple phones in a weird way as communicators. Uh, I don't know if they're really in the commerce space, but again, for advertising, they're competing with Google. They're competing with Amazon and so on. Facebook's probably the most different of these four. Yeah, but Facebook competes with Google and now Amazon for digital marketing dollars. But the interesting thing around this is. So from a consumer standpoint or an antitrust standpoint, there's safety and hatred. They've all run out of befuddled prey in their own sectors, and they're bumping What do you mean, befuddled prey? Well, okay, uh, television advertising. Google has already eaten the lunch of print advertising. Google has literally decimated newspapers in the United States. Most newspapers now shutting down and just being digital. The majority of them are gone or a shadow of themselves. And by the way, I just want to mention, you were on the the board of the New York Times this is something you're intimately familiar with the, yeah. the, the most reputable paper in in the country you know depending on you know your personal uh, yep. some people will arguably disagree but uh, but it was a very influential paper uh, we'll talk about that later because I think that was an interesting attempt by you to battle this trend but but yes so they they now are going after each other because they're just getting into each other's swim lanes. They used to be on each other's boards. Eric Schmidt was on Apple's board until the phone. They until they both right. came up with the same, same phone. idea. <laughs> but here's the I think the interesting thing about this is wherever the Venn diagram overlaps and they're they're competing with each other, one company is always winning. Who would you say that company is? Well, originally I would before I read this book, I would have said Google. But now that I've read this book, I have to agree with you on Amazon. Everywhere Amazon is bumping up against these guys, whether it's hardware, they're bumping up against Apple and voice, they're winning. Siri own voice, Amazon is kicking Siri's ass in full view of everyone right now. Where it bumps Alexa. Well, Alexa, 70% share of home now, which is going to be the new battlefront for a reallocation of trillions of dollars in value. It's going to be the home and voice, where it has been it has been the mobile phone and mobile ISs. Well, and this is why I mentioned this, that they were coming the almost the same company, is because you were talking about Google. Google, you 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 said specifically uh, two minutes ago, Google almost knows what you want before you know what you want. Yeah. Um, but that made me think of what you say in the book about Amazon. Because of what you're asking um, uh, Alexa all the time with Amazon, Amazon also is starting to know what you want before you want it. And Amazon can actually make money on knowing that because they can start ordering things for they you. They can monetize it different ways. But so we started we started with computer hardware. Let's talk about streaming video, right? You think of Netflix. Amazon was number seven in 2015 in percentage of primetime viewing via streaming video. 2016, it's number three, and it's now the number two spender at four and a half billion of original TV content. Yeah, I think this year they're passing Netflix and what they're going to spend on original they're content. They're $2 billion behind Netflix only because Netflix increased their budget $2 billion when they heard Amazon's footsteps behind uh-huh. them. I didn't know but that. Amazon is now spending more than NBC, ABC, HBO. It's the number two spender. 
Where they're bumping up against Facebook and Google and digital marketing, Amazon Media Group is a billion and a half dollars growing faster than Google and will probably grow faster than Facebook next year. What do you mean? Well, I don't know Amazon Media Group. What's If you're Procter & Gamble, Amazon Media Group shows up and says, hey, would you like to know when someone puts Huggies, a competitor to um, Pampers, in their, in their cart and you can advertise Pampers? That's pretty awesome banner advertising. Yeah. So Amazon now has... Ad representatives, no different than Google or Facebook, showing up to the largest advertisers saying, you should advertise on Amazon. And by the way, we can give you what almost nobody else can give you. We can tell you what every ad attributes to in terms of actual sales. When you run an ad on Amazon, we can tell you exactly if we sold more of your product or if we sold more of a competitor. So it's an incredibly strong and meanwhile, I mean, that's valuable data, but Amazon, of course, keeps the most valuable data of all, which is... It, the most valuable asset a company can have mm -hmm. in, in today's day and age, I think, is the actual list of your customers. Mm -hmm. And Amazon has that list. Nobody else has that list. And I mean, the behavior, I mean yeah. small companies have that list. Like, yeah. like if you were selling a, a, a book out of your own blog, you have the list of people who bought your book. Yeah. But Amazon really has the, the the billion person list and everything they bought. Facebook's right up there too, because by the sheer nature of Facebook, it's an overt... It's an overt, you're, you're raising your hand and saying, this is who I am. So there's more identities attached to data on Facebook than there is on Google. Oh, it's they, arguable what data is. Data could be you're the sum of everything you bought. Now that's not, I mean, identity could be the, the sum of everything you bought. Now that's not true in a personal sense, but in terms of a um, translating data to money sense, yep. that could be true. But we were talking about Amazon competing against the others. So where Amazon bumps up against Google in product search, Amazon had 44% in 2015. By 16, it had 55% of product search. Mm -hmm. Everywhere Amazon is computer hardware. What's the most innovative hardware product of 15 and 16? The Apple Watch, the Apple Pods? No, it's Amazon's Echo. Everywhere Amazon is bumping up against the other guys, it's winning. So if I were gonna write a sequel to this book, it would be called The One, because the more research I did here, I, by the way, it's not a mutually exclusive game. Each of these companies has amazing franchises, and I believe it's possible for all of them to blow through a trillion dollars in market cap. But the one company here that is firing on all 12,000 cylinders and is beating up anybody who gets near it is Amazon. Well, you know, I've, I've visited Amazon quite a bit. I've, I've, I've been in Seattle. I've talked to many Amazon executives. And, and this is over the years. They basically realize that these and only these four companies have the total stack, which is, you know, they have all your data, they have the cloud, they have, um, uh, you know, they're all kind of competing and, and jockeying in the same places. You know, you mentioned a few other companies that can get there toward, towards the end, but Amazon's always been aware of these three other companies. And, mm -hmm. and I'm sure these three companies are aware of them. Amazon just happens to be the company I know the best. But Amazon has definitely taken the view that they're after these companies. But Amazon has, I don't know if you call it part of the stack, Amazon has something, a couple things neither of these companies have. One, it has a fulfillment network, which is an analog moat that's put warehouses within 20 miles of 45% of the US population. And by the way, that's misleading because it's probably 75% of discretionary income in the US. So they can get you a box within 47 minutes or delivery in Manhattan. And then if you don't like it, come get it. Not, none of the other three have that. So they've built this multi-billion-dollar moat in the form of a fulfillment network. What if what if Google were to buy? I'm just making this up. Sure. What if Google were to buy Walmart? So Walmart has an incredible fulfillment center as well because they yeah. have you know 
that would be a silly. that would be a formidable that would be a formidable competitor. And by the way, did you see Google and Walmart are working together? I didn't see that. So the most impressive company of the '90s, Walmart, is working with the most impressive company of the aughts, Google, to take on the most impressive company of today, Amazon. Mm-hmm. And they're coming together to form a a voice and shopping based partnership between Google and Walmart because they realize Amazon is running away with it. This is where we're headed, James, and this is why Amazon's going to be the first trillion dollar market cap company. Amazon is gonna run something called Prime Squared, a test. And this is pure conjecture. And they'll run it in a college town and they're gonna say, James, we have your purchase history, we have your credit card, we have a fulfillment network that can get you products to you and from you really seamlessly. And we have this butler following you around your house where you make decisions, maybe even when your phone's not near you, called called Alexa. We're gonna send you two boxes three times a week. One box is gonna have everything in it we think you want. And the second box is just empty, put it in, or the same box and send it back and we'll pick it up. And you'll be able to manicure everything using this unbelievable technology called Alexa. So you might say, Alexa, I'm going out of town for two weeks. Alexa, I want Stella Artois, not Heineken. Alexa, I'm having a dinner party for eight people on Friday night. Alexa, send me six quotes for auto insurance for a Toyota Camry 2014 via email. And they'll run this test called zero click ordering. And they're gonna show that the households in this test go from $1,300 a year, which is the average annual purchase volume of a prime, prime household to six or 7,000. And we're gonna realize that for 70 or 80% of our purchases, which are low consideration and tedious, Amazon's gonna take it all. And the stock's gonna become anti-gravity, blow through a trillion dollars. We're gonna freak out and break them up. Well, uh, that's interesting. So you would break them up, I guess, through retail, cloud, uh, uh, perhaps AI slash Alexa, um, maybe Kindle, you know, self, you know, publishing. The cleanest would just be to spin AWS. I think prophylactic. My prediction is prophylactically, and because I, I think Bezos and the folks are so smart that they're going to, as as they become more and more dominant and scary, I think they're prophylactically going to spin the AWS. But I think the AWS business. I think they'll break themselves up before the blunt instrument of regulation knocks at the door. The, you know, this is where we could disagree a little bit. I just, I actually think these companies have already surpassed the power of any institution to break them They're up. They're more powerful than the government. Yes. Yeah, we were talking about this before. Yeah, you and I disagree. And I think I think I might be naive. You're sort of taking the view I call the world is what it is. I think the world is what we make of it. And I think we shouldn't give up on our elected officials to restore fair markets. But, but I agree that the world is what we make of it. So we yeah. elected officials that already gave the power to them behind, behind closed doors. Fair point. So we don't know. Fair point. I, where I think it's going to happen is not where we expect it. I, I agree with you, it's not gonna come out of Washington. They don't have the will, and I don't think they have the domain expertise to go after these guys. I think you're right, these guys are more powerful than Washington. Where you could see it is where you don't expect it, in a red state that's had no, nothing but bad things from Google. The consumers get to search, but their newspapers are gone, their wages are down. They, Walmart employees are all fired. So they, they, the, the Missouri AG who just filed a, a, um, uh, an investigation or just announced an investigation against Google has a little downside. The other place I think you're really gonna see it is where all the other major conflicts of the 20th century have broken out, the war against big tech, and I think it's gonna be a war is gonna be in continental Europe because we register a lot of upside in the US from these companies. We get a lot of benefits, a lot of downsides that we're having a serious discussion now for the first time in a while. But Europe registers all of the downside, job destruction, privacy concerns, weaponization by foreign governments, um, uh, 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 privacy. 
but they get a fraction of the upside. There aren't that many hospital buildings or university buildings named after Facebook or Amazon employees in Europe. So Marguerite Vestager is the first regulator, the first person, government person in the world, who I would argue whose testicles have descended and is going to go gangster on these guys. And You're going to see your first $10 billion plus fine come out of Europe against one or more of these firms. But the good thing is, I mean, not good, good or bad, they could pay it. But this, that's a great point because, so Google is found to be conducting an anti-competitive practices, sending stuff to their own properties, which they said they wouldn't do. They get fined $2.7 billion. 3% of their cash on hand, stock goes up the day they announce it. Right, it reminds me of um, in Freakonomics, I forget if it was, it was the first Freakonomics book um, written by Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner, who've been on the podcast. Uh, they showed that when you chart, like one school got upset that parents were dropping off their kids late, so they yeah. put it in a fine. So, okay. People felt permission to do it. Yeah, so now yeah. More, people, more, more kids were late and their parents just paid the fine. Yeah, Clay Shirky uh, writes about that as well. So this is what we're doing. We've elected people that are basically issuing 25 cent parking tickets for a meter that costs 100 bucks an hour. So what we have said, and who's at fault here? The man in the mirror. We've elected officials and implicitly told them to tell, to communicate to these companies with your fines that the smart shareholder thing to do is to lie and break the law. The best example is Facebook, who claimed, who told EU regulators when they were trying to get the acquisition of WhatsApp approved in Europe, that it would be impossible for the core platform Facebook to share data with WhatsApp. Because justifiably, Europeans are very sensitive about lists of people with data attached to it. And they said, it would be impossible for us to share the data. So acquisition approved, and then boom, spoiler alert, 90 days post-acquisition, they figure it out. And they start sharing data between the two. And the EU says, we feel lied to Facebook. We're going to find you. What was the benefit? I'm sorry, what was the benefit of sharing data with WhatsApp? Because I just used that to make phone calls internationally. Well, knowing where you are and who you're contacting. Mm -hmm. um, you just have more data on everybody now. WhatsApp is just, I mean, huge penetration. And just more data, where you are, who you're calling, it's just you know right. more, more more complete stack on that consumer list. Facebook gets fined 112 million dollars, which is 0.6 percent of the acquisition price of WhatsApp. So if you're a CEO and you have a choice of being totally forthright with EU regulators, or maybe kind of holding some data back and knowing you might be fined 0.6 percent if they find that you that information you were holding back was in fact a lie, what's the smart thing to do? So we're and, and my guess is, by the way, that didn't even uh, affect the uh, cash holdings of Facebook because, in general, on an acquisition like a twenty billion dollar acquisition, they're going to withhold a billion or two anyway for no. exactly these things. It was it was a flea hitting the windshield on a Mack truck. They barely felt it. I mean, what I the question I would ask us as, and regulators is, what wasn't the responsible thing to do? For e regulators say you lied to us when you were asked, seeking approval of this company, so we're going to undo the acquisition. As far as we're concerned, you no longer own WhatsApp. I mean, at some point, somebody is going to hit that these mean, guys though? hard. Like, when, how do you undo an acquisition? Like, it's a fair point. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, but or okay, instead of finding them 116 million, find them, find them 12 billion. I mean, we're going to see a fine come out of Europe that when it's announced, the stock doesn't go up. We're going to see a fine that is really going to hurt. Okay, but then, okay, so I'm Google, I'm Larry Page, yeah. and Europe's threatening a trillion dollar fine. Yep. I'm just going to do what I did with China and say, okay, Google is no longer available in Europe. And oh, that'd which, be tough. Which threat is stronger? That'd be tough because here's the bottom line. Let's use that as an example. 
China let Google in long enough to steal their IP and then propped up a local competitor and captured all the value domestically. And maybe Chinese citizens don't have access to the best search engine. Italy, and, Baidu. yeah, Baidu. Mm-hmm. Italy and Europe has let Google in, and they have a better search engine, and they've they've engaged in this full body content capitalism free trade in the West we love. But who who's the stupid one? Is China the stupid one? I'm not talking about ethics. Right. I'm talking about sheer sure. economic value. So I think not only not only is that threat not scary for Europe, I think there's a decent chance you're going to see a small European nation kick one of these guys out. They're going to look at China. They're going to look at, say, Italy and say, what happened to the media business in Italy with Google? What happened to the job base? What happened to the tax base? And then what happened in China, who basically stole the IP and created their own competitors in, in search? Who's the stupid one here? You know, um, there's a small story about this, which is that... Um who, who's the founder of Baidu again? What's his name? I, I forget. Oh, gosh, something Ip. Um, anyway, he um, he and Larry Page both took the same patent and modified it to create uh, a search engine that depends on. Oh, it's the uh, Xerox Park of Apple and the, right, right, yeah, yeah. So, well, well, I'll tell you that in a second. Um, they both took the same patent, which was um, how you rank. Um, articles based on what articles, the value of the articles that link to it, and that's what made. They, yeah. Both search engines have the same underlying IP as opposed to the search engines that came before it, like Lycos, Excite, and yep. you know, all these things. Hot the wire. original patent, which they never used, was owned by Dow Jones. Hmm. So that's kind of interesting that basically the newspaper industry did have they owned this it. patent and technology, but they never used it. That'd be a different world. And so and so so the guy from Baidu, whose name I now forget, he quit Dow Jones because he wanted to make this search engine for Dow Jones. Mm-hmm. He quit and moved to China and started Baidu and Larry Page licensed essentially and started Google. Interesting. Yeah. So so uh you know, I used to think Apple was gonna be the first trillion dollar company. It might, it's close. It's close, right? Yeah. And and the reason I thought it was because it was purely based on Wall Street metrics, which is mm-hmm. that they trade for I don't know if if you look at like next year's estimated cash flows, which are fairly easy to predict with Apple. Not totally easy, but fairly easy. They're they're only going to trade at like five times it's cash not, flows. It's next not year. a crazy expensive stock, right? Yeah, it, right, yeah. like it's a like people say, oh my god, a trillion, but it's actually cheap relative to every other tech stock out there on Wall Street metrics. But you in this book convinced me why Amazon, which is barely profitable compared with these other three companies. And and kind of exists on sort of um, well well I'll get into it but I believe you on Amazon because they have converted their vision into capital as opposed to just having capital whereas Apple now is seen as essentially visionless not totally visionless yeah. but partially visionless well it's the iPhone and the seven doors right now and yeah. what Amazon has done that's so incredible is using their core competence which I would argue is storytelling. They've convinced, they've reshaped the compact between the markets and companies, and that is they have replaced profits with vision and growth. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Are you racing against the clock to wrap up projects, prepping for meetings later in the afternoon, all the while trying to tackle a mountain of paperwork? Well, I know the feeling. Welcome to life as a freelancer. FreshBooks is excited to announce the launch of an all-new version of their cloud accounting software to help the self-employed. It's redesigned from the ground up and custom-built for the way you work. Trust me on this, because I know. Get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, 
organized and get paid quickly. Create and send professional looking invoices in less than 30 seconds. Set up online payments with just a couple of clicks and get paid up to four times faster. See when your client has seen your invoice and put an end to guessing games. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial at freshbooks.com slash James and enter the James Altucher show in the how did you hear about us section. That's freshbooks.com slash James. Let's say you're an employee at Amazon mm-hmm. and you want to get an idea approved all the way up through Jeff Bezos or whatever. Do you know what the task, there's one specific task every employee has to do if they want to get an idea approved to move forward. And uh, the task is you have to write the press release as if it's you already it finished. And uh, and then it has to be an impressive press release. Mm-hmm. So in that kind of, I never thought about it until your book, but that link, that idea that you actually have to force people to to do that, which means you have to basically explain something very simply that the masses can understand, and it has to fit what the vision. What you 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 what you do in this book is express the importance of storytelling and vision, and how that converts into money and cheap capital and to more opportunities. And I think what I take from that is that works for human brands as well. So if you have a vision, you so. So let, let's just, you wanted to combat the, the digital emergence of how we use Google and these other things as news. You you approached the hedge fund 10 years ago and said, let's take over the New York Times. We can fight this battle, um, the, the storytelling battle. We can keep print media alive. And like, what, why did you do that? Why did you think you can compete with these guys? So... Uh, this, so you're talking about in 2007, I was advising hedge funds on what were undervalued assets saying, let's take large positions, go on the board and try and unlock value, mostly coaching them around digital. And I did a sum up the parts analysis in 2007 of the New York Times, where if you took out the value of the seventh tallest building in America, which they owned, if you took out the 17% stake of the Boston Red Sox, which they what, what owned. What building do they own? They own the New York Times headquarters right here. On That's the site. seventh tallest building in the world? Seventh tallest building in America. Oh, in America, I didn't know so that. So basically they had a billion dollar asset. They were a REIT posing as a newspaper. They owned 17% of the Boston Red Sox, which never made any sense to me. They owned, uh, do you remember about.com? Mm-hmm. Which I thought was worth about a billion at the time. And if they'd sold it, it would have been a billion. So basically you were picking up the New York Times for almost free on the analysis I did. And I approached a hedge fund and said, let's become the largest shareholder and go on the board. Let's have them sell their non-core assets and double down on digital. Because I still believe then and now that the New York Times is the most robust evangelist of Western values in the world. And I think that counts for something. And I think there's tremendous economic value there in addition to being a civic good. And I thought there was a huge opportunity to one, shut off Google and then be the leader around premier content that we don't let these search engines um, Google us, if you will, and create our own, license our own content around the web and give it to the highest bidder. Uh, I thought there was huge opportunity to monetize our content online across niche offerings. I thought deal books should be sold at $1,000 a year, that we should make it like a Birkin bag of financial information, and that we should cancel the dividend and double down and reinvest in digital. And it, it all made a lot of sense, I thought. And then the crisis came and it was like, all bets were off. And the stock went from, I think, 18 to three in a matter of 14 months. But I still believe that. And to their credit, I think under the leadership of the management team and Martin Nissen holds back then who was running digital, 
I think they've done a great job around digital. Um, but at the same time, though, where do you get your news? You, you, you open up Google in the morning. Well, the stupidest Twitter. thing, the stupidest thing we ever did, and I'll say we in print media, was buy into this enormous bullshit lie that information wants to be free and let Google crawl our data and then sell it using a business model that's much more lucrative than ours. We should have never, we, mm. we effectively let them pull up to our bank vault with a dump truck and take money out every day. CBS or ESPN never said, oh, information wants to be free and let YouTube crawl them. Bloomberg has never bought into this notion that information wants to be free. It's so interesting because you look back to the beginnings of the web, um, so that's all search engines do is go to other sites and scrape all the information off and then catalog it into databases. It's like it's like all these companies, mil a million companies sell their information to customers, but let these search engines just get it for free. And they get a dollar, we get 10, the, the, the relationship was okay, but they'll drive traffic. But we were monetizing that traffic at one-tenth of what they were monetizing, monetizing our content for. And we decided that that was a good deal because there was this, what I call hot girl effect. And that is everybody wants to hang out with a hot girl. Everyone wants to hang out with a quarterback. So to say you're doing a deal with Google made you feel younger and more interesting and information wants to be free. In the second board meeting, I proposed one, that we uh, sell 20% of the company to Eric Schmidt and make him CEO. And two, that we shut off all search engines and lead a consortium of the Murdochs, the new houses, the people own FT, and basically pull all of that content off of every digital platform, create one beautiful source of content, whether it's Vogue, the FT, or the New York Times, and license it to the highest bidder. And instead, we decided to let these guys continue molesting our information and debasing the content. And Eric Schmidt, I mean, I don't even, I don't have an opinion whether he was the, the I, we don't really know between Eric Schmidt, Larry Page, and Sergey Brin who who was making the decisions over at Google. You know, it was probably all some combination of all three. But just Eric Schmidt being the CEO of the New York Times would have been a big signal to the digital world that we're still in play. I thought it was, yeah, you know, I loved it. He had just been kicked up to chairman, which is usually not the CEO's idea. So I thought this is our opportunity. Tell right. him. Was tell he him, accepting? You never say whether he would have accepted or not. Oh, I, you know, I, the, so to be, I feel like there's enough, 10 years has passed, so I feel like the Freedom of Information Act, I think boards need to be more transparent. But the bottom line is when I proposed it, I was pretty much laughed out of the room. I'm like, well, we're not gonna shut up Google. Google's the future. And Eric Schmidt would never take a job here. And I thought, absolutely he would. And we, we should start commanding the space we occupy. You don't see Birkin bags distributed through Walmart. Why are we letting our content show up on Google next to Breitbart or Joey Bag of Donuts Daily News. This, the basics- That's my website. That's yours, you own that? <laughs> the basics of brand management, the basics of distribution. We fell into this ridiculous lie. We took a gun and shot ourselves in the feet and then reloaded and put the gun in our mouth. But, but would Eric Schmidt have accepted the job? I don't know. Okay, so you never know. reached out to him? Never, re I reached out to several, I reached out to several players um, uh, about some of these ideas and had some very interesting conversations and I'll wait till like 20 years have passed. Because basically every billionaire Democrat, every billionaire Republican in America wants to own a football team. What I found is every billionaire Democrat in America wants to own the New York Times. So there were a lot of interesting conversations with different people. And by the way, let me add, I think the Salzburgers family have been great owners. I think that this is in their blood. I think they protected the newsroom at all costs. So I think on the whole, while I did not get along on a day-to-day -day basis around business strategy with um, uh, their representatives on the board. I think that the family has done a tremendous service to 
to Western values and been a really robust uh, evangelist for, but, the, for the newsroom. But again, things cycle. Just like Walmart yep. was run by an amazing innovator in retail, Sam Walton. Yep. And the Washington Post was run by an amazing uh, newspaper family, the Grahams. Uh, uh, things cycle. It's not always about... So you the know, best who, thing who, that could happen in the New York Times, and this isn't a disparaging statement on Salzburgers, is a benign, hugely deep-pocketed person shows up and takes- Carlos Slim? Well, Carlos Slim, I'm not sure Carlos Slim had the domain expertise, mm -hmm. but look, if anything, Jeff Bezos, uh, his um, acquisition of the Washington Post has shown one thing, ownership matters. And if you have owners with domain expertise and capital, you can make huge advances. I think what the Washington Post has done a lot, I think the Washington Post has made more gains over the last 24 months than any media company in the world, including Facebook and Google. Well, I mean, uh, Jeff Bezos, and that, now we're kind of getting into the weeds of this, but uh, Jeff Bezos did his game plan with Washington Post, which is not only kind of um, play with the value of their brand and, and so on, but also take the infrastructure that creates the Washington Post and start licensing that infrastructure out the same way he did with, AWS. He take he took the cloud that the, the cloud services that they built in house to, to to handle Amazon. They started selling that cloud service to every other corporation. Now it's a huge part of their business. He did the same thing at the Washington Post, which was sort of a, an an unbelievable insight to me. Like I, I was very creative. Yeah, but even just the CRM and email. Amazon's great with email, figuring out what emails you want, what you own, won't unsubscribe to, and figuring out a way to tease you into giving their email address. Washington Post is showing up in my inbox. Yeah. I never read the Washington Post even two or three years ago, and now I find myself reading it all the time. So I think what what the current management with the assistance of domain expertise and capital from Jeff has been has been remarkable. But you know, so 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 um, let me see. I just want, I I have a bunch of notes, but I do want to. Um, you have so many great statistics too. Like it's amazing to read. Oh, this is what the top companies were ten years ago. Here's what the top top companies are now. It's like yeah. you said, the biggest. Uh, 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 um, what do you call it? The, the guys who the biggest employer who would um, retain your students after they graduate was American Express ten years ago. Now it's Amazon. Now mm -hmm. you have a whole bunch of those statistics, like uh, comparing Sears ten years ago to where Sears is now. Is all great stuff. But I'm really intrigued by all these kind of uh, things that. Um, you mentioned are the the sort of uh, things that make these four separate from every other company in the world. And mm -hmm. but before we get into those things, because because I think those you call it the T algorithm, I think the T algorithm is directly applicable to in individual success as well. They're, these companies are successful because they apply these things, uh, but individuals can do them as well. And I think I thought that was interesting to, to think about, but I wanted to ask you like, okay, every 10 years, there's a new set of 10 companies that we think can never be unseated. Right. Who could ever unseat Chrysler? Who could ever unseat yeah. Walmart? But now it does seem, and maybe um, it's wrong to think this way, it really does seem that, that unless there's huge regulatory hurdles, nothing can really unseat Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google anymore. So maybe I, Uber, but that's it. So I agree with you, um, and but let's acknowledge when guys like you and me say that, it usually signals they're about to go into structural decline. So <laughs> that only be, could be okay. Apple could be in structural decline because the obvious when they enhance their next computer or their next phone, I no longer need any enhancements. Yeah, I, the only reason I would get a new phone now, two reasons: 
is if the phone fails, so they yeah. can program the phone to fail every couple of years, which they probably do, um, or if they extend battery life. Battery life is the only thing useful to me, but battery life hasn't really extended that much in the past 40 years. So, yeah. you know, uh, so Apple, I could see structurally there's there's things that are happening there, but the other ones, I can't see it. Like, who's going to sell more than Amazon? So, ever? I agree with you, but I'm just I'm just acknowledging about the time people start freaking out about a company's dominance is usually when the bell is rung and they start going to structural decline, whether it's IBM, whether it's Walmart being hauled in front of Congress, whether it's Microsoft. But having said that, I agree with you. Now, where I, where I used to think the potential fifth horseman was going to be Uber, I no longer think it's Uber. I think the potential fifth horseman that has is in striking distance of being a formidable competitor to these guys is actually Netflix. Because at the end of the day, these companies are all operating systems for our lives, operating systems for retail, for information, for media. And Netflix is now the operating system for the second most important screen in our households, which is television. And television has taken on a more meaningful role in our lives. Because if you look at where capital is being reallocated, it's being reallocated out of theaters, the best talent, the best capital, used to go to film. Now it's going to television. Well, TV's having a renaissance. So, oh, so, so you might have a screen that... Millennials, millennials watch more Netflix than the rest of cable television combined. So they sh Netflix has an, is in a situation, is in a position to do what the other guys have done, and that is use their access, their custody of the consumer to start building other businesses. The celebrity death match, the Ollie Frazier that's coming our way, people talk about Google versus Facebook or Amazon versus Walmart, the really fun Thunderdome match that's gonna happen not next year, but in 2019, is going to be Amazon running head into Netflix. I guess that's interesting. So, so there's there's two things I want to unpack out of that. First off, I could do an entire one hour with you, I'm sure, about Netflix and television. Yeah, because I I agree. All of the talent from like if if you write a a, a Pulitzer Prize selling novel, mm -hmm. you'll sell two thousand copies mm -hmm. before you win the prize. Then you'll sell a few more because you won the prize. Um, if you have like the worst show on Netflix, probably a million people will have watched it at some point. Yeah. So there's a huge difference in numbers. All the talent, I mean, you look at everybody from uh, Woody Allen. I mean, every major TV show is, is now written, either written, directed by, or starring movie stars. So all the movie mm -hmm. talent is moving towards Netflix. Yeah. But I do think there's a granularity to television, which is you see now Disney's pulling out of Netflix. I mean, sure. I think, I think, Content is is king still, mm -hmm. and, and this is a really a different topic than who will combat these four. But I think content will always be king, and distribution is a little more of a commodity. So Netflix, to your point, mm -hmm. has to figure out how to get out of the commodity business, which is distribution, and expand their businesses like Amazon has. Yeah, like selling a product online was a commodity that Amazon figured out quickly how to dominate and then move into other businesses before they got yeah. taken over by someone else. But Netflix has to do the same, to your point. Hopefully they can, or not hopefully, but they should figure that out. And the, the gangster acquisition that would have been transformative that they must be kicking themselves about is Netflix was worth $5 billion just about six years ago. If Disney bought Netflix, and you could still see the two merging feasibly, although it's probably Apple buying Netflix, Disney and Netflix would have been really interesting. Disney's one of the few companies that if they had the cojones to pull an Adobe and take prices way down and, and withdraw from every other channel, Disney, the, the real gangster move for Iger, and he probably is one of the few old economy CEOs that has the credibility to do this, would be to pull his content off of every distribution channel except his own prime-like offering 
and then include the theme parks, include uh, the cruises, and say you have to become a member of Disney Prime to have access to Star Wars, Marvel, the parks, everything. And we're going to charge you $19.95 a month and turn a business of non-recurring revenue that's evaluated on an EBITDA basis to recurring revenue, which gets valued at a multiple of revenues. The stock would go way down, but it could come back much, much stronger. And basically said, there's a new there's a new sheriff in town, and it's called Disney Prime. And if you want access to anything we do, you got to have a monthly relationship with Disney. I mean, maybe that's why they're pulling out of Netflix. Maybe they're beginning to think that way. They are beginning to think that way. The problem is it'll be incremental because what they don't want to do is take Star Wars off of Netflix because they still got a lot of money. They still don't want to not let people into Disneyland even if they're not Disney Prime members. The, Disney is in a position to take their revenues down one or two years dramatically and come back with the mother of all recurring revenue businesses that takes offline and online. That's the gangster move that might take Disney to three or 400 billion in market cap. It, it's so interesting because, I mean, and now we're almost getting into the weeds on, on stock prices, which which I don't like to do, but um, I do think Bob Iger is one of the best CEOs of Hands history. Down. Fantastic. Like, like just the acquisitions of Pixar, Lucasfilm, Marvel, these things stole Star Wars. Stole Star stole Wars. It. I I don't even understand. Other than maybe George Lucas just said, "Ah, I just need two billion dollars." Right. And then, whatever. I'm getting divorced, or I want a new Winnebago, or I yeah. don't. Yeah. I, don't, I can't. I thought that was one of the great. We don't talk about that, but people talk about Tim Cook filling the shoes of Steve Jobs. My gosh, Iger took over from Eisner, who was a very big personality. And he's done an amazing job. And he brings some really nice qualities to a CEO position. He seems humble. He yeah. seems thoughtful. And he has he has done a fantastic job with the company. So I put in the book, I talk about which company could be the fifth horseman, and I talk about Disney. And I think Disney is one of the few old, few quote unquote old media companies that could in fact start punching at this weight class. And I used to think you were you mentioned Uber and and I use and I I remember when I'm reading when I was reading the chapter in the book. Um. Uh, oh, when's he going to mention Uber? Because Uber is for cars, like Amazon was for books. That was mm -hmm. just a starting point. And then you actually mentioned that exact analogy because Uber really is kind of almost the Amazon of logistics in a weird way. Like they can do logistics on anything that requires GPS and pick up and drop off and so on. But now so can Amazon. <laughs> so, so I thought Uber had a shot because I thought Uber was going to be the last mile fulfillment for a lot of different companies and be a threat to Amazon's backend fulfillment. I no longer think that's true. I'm more bearish. This is what Uber needs to be. Uber needs to be the operating system of all travel, such that I'm going to LA tomorrow morning. When I pull up Uber, it's to get to Newark. I need to get to a position where, where Uber acquires Expedia or some other players, and I type in the address in Beverly Hills where I'm going tomorrow, and it tells me the most efficient way and all the options for getting there. Airlines, hotels, Uber, all of it. And they start owning all of my travel, just the way Amazon now owns all of my retail, the same way that Apple now owns all of my media at home through Apple TV. That's the only way Uber's gonna get to several hundred billion dollars in value. The, in, my prediction is that actually Airbnb surpasses Uber in market cap and value because Airbnb has a moat that Uber doesn't. And that is you and I could start a ride hailing firm in New York with about $50 million because what you need is supply, you need drivers, and then you need demand, people who wanna take rides. And you can create both of those things locally. With Airbnb, you need to create supply, people who will rent out their houses, 
But you need to create demand on a global level because the people who want Airbnbs in New York are coming from everywhere in the world. So the moats that Airbnb is, has built are actually bigger than Uber. And why, that's why you're seeing Uber has local competitors propping up everywhere. Whereas name a competitor to Airbnb. Um, exactly. One fine stay. Yeah, that's a niche product at the, the high end. They'd probably, they'd probably Uber, they'd probably Airbnb will buy. I, my prediction is Airbnb passes the value of Uber in the next twenty four months unless Dara purchases Expedia, which I think they might. It, it could be. I mean, the problems that Airbnb and Uber both have, and I see this very particularly with Airbnb. So, for the past, I would say three years, I've only lived in Airbnbs until really? just recently. Yeah, I didn't rent or I didn't own. But now, what are I'm you seeing, married with kids? Uh, I have kids, not married. Got it. And um, your kids come visit you at your Airbnbs. They come. They come visit to my Airbnb wherever I'm Airbnb. And you, wow. So you 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 live in Airbnb? Or I, I I just recently changed, but before a reason. And the reason I had to change is because uh, I started seeing, and maybe not everyone sees this. There's a, and this is where the your four avoided. Yeah. There's huge regulatory backlash against Airbnb. So, for yeah. instance, the the Department of Justice uh, or somebody at that level yeah. is subpoenaing every record that Airbnb has. They're trying to and and locally laws are being made in every city yeah. against um, people who are just uh, owning for. Uh, investment purposes to Airbnb. Well, and Paris has limited the number of nights. New York has limited. You can't. You have to own the place you're Airbnb. If you own two places, you can't Airbnb both, both places. Now, yeah. now everybody in New York's breaking that law, yeah. and everybody's doing side deals. Also, um, I've seen so much stuff within the Airbnb infrastructure. Yeah. But what I'm most interested in is the fact that I'm also seeing people I know get subpoenaed. Um, wow. Meaning nothing bad to them personally. So I don't know what the target is. Um, it's just we're going to take all your Airbnb records, whether you like it or not. And that can't happen on Google. No one's subpoenaing. Right. You're, you're, no one's sending you an email saying, we just subpoenaed all your Google search records. But I, I've seen that subpoena. We're looking at every place that you've stayed at Airbnb. So the question is whether the hotel lobby is stronger than the taxi lobby, which Uber was basically able to roll over in uh, right. uh, New York. I think Airbnb's value proposition has so many fans. I think there's, they're going to come to an accommodation. I think they're going to start paying taxes like the hotels do. I think they're going to start being better citizens in terms of, I mean, it's come out that Uber opened in Argentina and never applied for a business license. Mm. They just started operating. Mm. They, didn't, they didn't even bother applying for the whatever, the $49 business license in Buenos Aires. They just set up an office and started, started telling people to turn on their smartphones and offer rides. So I think all of these companies are subject to some sort of regulatory threat. It may be greater for Airbnb. It sounds like you know more about it. But what Airbnb has been able to do, creating global demand and regional supply is really powerful. So anyways, yes, we'll see. I agree with that. Um, so I wanted to get into this, t, the, the T algorithm, what you say are the um, components of, of success of, of these four companies. Because I think, again, I think it's interesting for me just personally um, how this applies to personal and individual success because I think these companies are so unique. There's lessons to, to learn from them. One is the first product differentiation um just thinking about that on an individual level i mean you know given that everybody's being replaced by every commodity human is being replaced by robots so you mm -hmm. can't stack at a warehouse anymore because a robot's going to replace that mm -hmm. you really human capital now has to differentiate itself to be 
to be successful. You have to be, and that's why content is king versus distribution. You have to offer something creative and, and individual to, yep. to succeed. I don't know if you see that direct translation. Uh, 100%. But. And you, you, I, you, I feel as if you could teach my class because I try and apply these pr principles to personal and professional success. And I think that, so a lot of people tell our kids over lunch when they come speak to them, follow your passion. And I find that people who tell you to follow your passion are generally already rich. And I think young people need to focus on find something you're great at and then become the best in the world at it. Don't even be, don't even strive to be the best at it. Strive to be the only one that can do what it is you're doing at that, at that firm it, and establish real differentiation. And then just circling back to the passion part, if you become really great at something, the psychological and financial accoutrements of being great at it will be so rewarding, you'll start to become passionate about it. I think that's true. And, and uh, Mark Cuban sort of says the same thing. He says, you're going to become passionate at what you're good at versus yeah. the other way around. And it's funny, I, I tell my daughter who's 15 and she thinks about college, even though I'm not as in favor of college uh, as, as many people know, but uh, she told me her GPA. Oh, wait, hold on, hold on, dude. <laughs> do, do not talk your daughter out of college. I, I know you you write about do this in the book. Do not talk your daughter out of college. But but I've never once hired based on college degree, and I know and, the and you're the anomaly. The and there's a lot more people that do. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. <laughs> but I just think college has become such a scam. By I, the way, I agree with you. The financial system. I agree with you. But here's the bottom line: you're successful. You have the economic wherewithal. I'm going to guess that your 15 year old daughter is pretty good at school. And she's going to have an opportunity to get into the right side of a caste system. And it's awful that it's a caste system, but it is. Because the kids who go to college end up making, on average, 3x with the kids who don't go to college. Now, I'm not suggesting everyone go to a mediocre college and take on hundreds of thousands in debt. But I'm going to assume your kid has the opportunities to go to a good school. And trust me on this, a decent college is a great plan B for a young person. Maybe it might be, we might have to have you back on the yeah. podcast. That, this really could be like a five yeah, hour yeah, discussion. Yeah. But given, I'm always about supporting them and giving them strategies to, to succeed at what they want to do. Yeah. So you're right. She has, I, she told me her GPA the other day and she was sort of, it was like a, a little bit of a brag about it. She said she has a 4.1 GPA, which wasn't even possible when we were kids. Yeah, like I remember so, that. But there was so much extra credit now That's right. that uh, they high schools want their kids to get into yeah. Oh, it's good, but everybody's got a 4.1 GPA now. Yeah. And I said, you why don't you find some area of life where there aren't a lot of women and become really good at it? Yeah. And, and 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 I say for her, she's she's a, a girl, so there's lots of areas that are male dominated that women aren't as much successful in, where that's how you could differentiate yourself. Sure. So for instance, if she entered 50 poker tournaments and and won one or two with the 4.1 GPA then she can get into any college, right? So that because then she has product differentiation. <laughs> yeah, well, at four point one. So I I think we're thinking along the same lines. But my advice to her, if I was her uncle or godfather, would be differentiate yourself by going to MIT with your four point one GPA and then going to venture capital, who is going to have to hire hundreds of female partners because there are none now in the but, venture but capital. But getting business. into MIT is hard. Like, yeah, well, sure, it's all hard. But yeah, my my guess is, if she applied to several places with a four point one GPA. She get into a great school. It might not be mm. MIT. It might be Wash U. There's a lot of great schools out there. But if she has a successful dad, she has the economic wherewithal. She has a 4.1 GPA, which means she understands how to play with others. She understands how to make deadlines. She understands the act. She would be, in my view, uh, I, 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 it's there's very little downside. I don't meet that many people. Are we allowed to curse on this show? By yeah, the way, yeah, of course. I don't meet. It's, I just the wild west. I just don't meet that. Many really successful people in their 30s or 40s who went to a top 20 school and say, you know what? 
I really fucked up going to Stanford. I mean, I hear that never. And <laughs> some people might say college has become too expensive. I get it. College is not for everyone. Hands down, down it's not. But if you're in a position to go to a good slash great school as a young person in this economy, by all means, get to college. And if you happen to be Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg and you are so exceptional that you drop out of Harvard in your second year, fine. But assuming you are Bill Gates is a really bad strategy. Go, go to the plan B. And if you're fortunate enough to be, have the wherewithal and the opportunities to go to a good slash great school, oh, hit the bid and go. And not only that, football, college football is a lot of fun. College <laughs> is a lot of fun. Um, there was, then your next one after um, uh, product differentiation, I actually think is your most important one, which is visionary capital. So essentially what you say earlier about Amazon, which is that they're, even though their earnings are low and, and that's traditionally such a, a sort of a bad sign on Wall Street, mm-hmm. they're able to monetize their vision and basically say their vision has value. That's such an important thing. Like having a vision for everything you're doing that is sort of bigger or more interesting than the vision of the people around you, that's a winning path to success. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's lots of ways to, to talk about that and directions to have that vision, how to have that vision and so on. I think that's that's such an important um, personal philosophy to have is really to think about what you value and and what your vision is for the future, which involves also learning a lot. So you have a vision. I think it's important uh, early on to have a code. So uh, take this back to unimportant stuff, business. Jeff Bezos, 1997 letter saying, we're going to massively invest across these through truisms of consumer value, uh, value selection and convenience have basically set this company apart forever because everyone just keeps throwing cheap capital at them. So your ability as a young person, and most people aren't this thoughtful to say, what is my code for how I live my life? What is something I really want to develop into an outstanding personal attribute? Do I want to be, do I, am I naturally an empathetic person? So maybe I have an opportunity to be the most empathetic person you know, that really is, am I a welcoming person? Am I a warm person? Am I quote unquote strategic? Do I work harder than anybody else? Take something that you say is an attribute and really go crazy with it and identify your code early on about how you interact with the professional world, how you interact with your friends, with, 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 with uh, your romantic relationships and try and consistently reinforce that code because people are drawn to people not because they necessarily agree with their beliefs, but based on the conviction of those beliefs and consistency. I think that's really true. And again, with Amazon, we see it directly with... Um you know, the fact that they con- people get constantly throw cheap capital at Jeff Bezos, despite the earnings proof, which is normally what requires, you, you know, which you need to have to get capital. Uh, people love his vision and his consistency and so on. With Steve Jobs, I would say it was more a personal vision that he always had, but that was enough to translate into the visionary capital for uh, Apple, then Pixar, then back to Apple, which drove cheap capital to them uh, and, and, and Next as well. Yeah. well. Why would Apple buy Next? Not, be, not because of their computers, because Steve Jobs' vision. Yeah. So it's such an important thing. I, I think that's, that's the most important thing. I'm going to skip to number four on yep. your list, which is also incredibly important. And nobody ever really thinks about this ever, but it's likability. Well, I think these four companies have mastered it. Regulators moved in on Microsoft when it was, in my opinion, less powerful than any of these companies right now. But we don't move in on these companies because they're really likable. Yeah, like no, like 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 you you point out, Larry Page is likable, and Steve Ballmer, whether he's likable or not, I don't know him personally, 
But just Larry Page in the news is more likable than Steve Ballmer was then. Zuckerberg and Sandberg versus Ballmer and Gates. Who do you want to? Who do you want to see an attorney general go after? And maybe you'll make them governor because they're going after these mean people who are unattractive and come across as very Darwinian. I mean, hey, everybody, lean in. Sheryl Sandberg's inspiring. Yeah, uh, Tim Cook is impossible not to like. And what I, I would go one step further than this. I think these companies purposely wrap themselves in a neon blue rainbow or pink blanket because we stereotype progressives, and I'm a proud member of that community, but people stereotype us as nice but weak. We're Alan Alda. We're not a threat to anybody. <laughs> Whereas conservatives are largely stereotyped as smart but mean. So the perfect foil, if you're Darth Vader and Ayn Rand during the day, is to talk about universal guaranteed income, which is what Jeff Bezos is talking about. It's to talk about the important debate around trying to balance family and work and be successful, which is what, but if Sheryl Sandberg was a big believer in gun rights, or if she was really pro-life, would Facebook be flying her around the world to speak to large audiences? So the perfect illusionist trick is to come across as wildly progressive because we're literally seeing, this is literally putting a wolf in sheep's clothing every day. And I think it's total bullshit. I, I, while I believe these people are generally progressive, I don't think, I think these people believe it. I think it's, you're not going to see a company in the tech community put a senior manager on stage to talk about gun rights or conservative values because those scare people. Yeah. When, but these companies are wildly powerful, more powerful than Microsoft, but they're so likable. They're visionary. They're, con they're concerned with the world. They're putting men on Mars. They're curing death for us, right? <laughs> right. So we're, we're much less inclined to promote or vote for someone who's gonna go after them. They have mastered the art of likability. Well, and I think, again, you see this on an individual level. No one's gonna hire someone they dislike versus someone they like. They don't even know the person, right? Because they, they haven't hired them yet and they haven't worked with them, but no one's gonna hire, so they, there's the standard expression, who do I wanna ride, uh, who, wanna, who do I wanna sit next to on a plane across the country? This person or this person? I'll hire the person that I wanna ride cross country with. Um, you know, on a plane. Uh, so likability at every level is is important. You have to like an actor to like the movie they're in. Yeah. And now there's all the, with all these news reports about different actors and celebrities, it doesn't affect their acting ability, but, but the actors that are no longer likable are not gonna get hired for anything ever again. And I think likability is something that I, I feel is not taught. It, you know, it's a skill. And like you said, we don't know what these people are actually like. I don't know any of them personally, but and maybe you do, but we don't know whether they're actually likable or not in a room, but they work really hard at uh, having that the presence of likability. And I think that needs to be taught or thought about by young people. It needs to be considered at least. Yeah, so, I mean, it's complicated, right? The right, playing with the right toys or the, or the wrong toys, but there's just no getting around it. These people manage their brands and their public perceptions very carefully, and they're, they've done a fantastic job. And I'm not saying like they, anybody should lie. No. Sometimes people have inner strengths they don't bring out because they don't realize how important it is to likability. These are, these are I don't know them, but everything I know about them, I think these are very decent, likable, good people. But they're very good at managing certain communication and attributes that make them seem very soft and cuddly. When during the day, these people are Darwin and Darth Vader. Make no mistake about it. They they play full body contact business and they make very brutal decisions. They dominate markets. They put companies out of business, and they don't put warning labels 
on your iPad, even though your kid has a crack-like addiction to the thing, right? So it's not, you know, it's they're smart. They're just better at this than anybody else. What do all Fortune 500 CEOs have in common? Or I would say 450 of them when you meet them, and I met a lot of them. They're really likable. You don't, you want to like- Even the ones that are also psychopaths, because there's a whole, a huge relationship supposedly between, between yeah. CEOs and- And yeah, um, being psychopathic, yeah. yeah. And, and yet- uh, part of being a psychopath is is knowing how to play the long game because they don't have any kind of short term cares about what people think about them. So, like they realize, likability is an important way to play the long game. Now, I'm not suggesting s- students and young people think in that way, but I think you know, like Sheryl Sandberg has vulnerabilities and she's not afraid to express them, and that makes someone likable. She's an inspiring person. I think she. I think she's impossible not to like. Yeah. Uh, she's an inspiring, an inspiring woman. Uh, a lot of the stuff that used to be thought of as personal, and that you don't talk about in a business context, if it's likable enough, they say let's let's get it out there because it'll it'll make us more likable and less likely that it'll stave off. It'll it'll make the point at which regulators come in. It'll delay it being yeah. likable. And, and again, I think on a on a personal level for for success, that's that's hugely important. And I think, um, and if, uh, you know, number five is very interesting. You call it uh, vertical integration, but I think the idea that um, you know you should focus on one thing and be great at it is sort of almost like an eighteen hundreds type of Blown idea. Out of the water, because <laughs> okay, if you want to be good at being on the assembly line get really good at it, but that's over. So now you need to be good at many things. What you call vertical integration for these companies, I think young people and middle-aged everybody needs to be good at many things. Not not 100 things, but like let's say five things. You need to have you know, uh, a set of abilities. Maybe you need to be good at persuasion, humor, uh, uh, reading, and, and maybe a few other things to succeed. You have to, and then integrate them all. So what, what I was trying to get out with verticals, I believe the most value-creating decision in the history of business, most people would say it was Apple's decision to launch a phone. I would say that they got the brand right, but the decision wrong. I believe it was Apple's decision to reallocate billions of dollars out of advertising and go into this dying medium called stores. And when you think about how crazy genius this decision one was, 2002, e-commerce taking off, stores declining, and Jeff Bezos walks into his board and says, I've got it, stores. But he saw the pre-purchase broadcast as an ability to build brands. That Valerium steel was dulling every day. But the actual consummation of a relationship between a brand and consumer still has to happen in the purchase experience. And the opportunity to bring people in and give them an experience in an Apple store versus the experience they have when they're connecting a Samsung phone in an AT&T or Verizon or Best Buy store is an opportunity for us to create a relationship that has such tremendous halo and brand power that we're gonna be able to create operating margins of a Ferrari and have the production volumes of a Toyota, which has created a company that'll do double the profits this quarter that Amazon has done in its entire history as a company. So all of these companies have done one thing, they control the consumer experience, they've gone vertical. And I think the only way you can be a four or $500 billion company as Tesla has done, they're not doing franchise dealerships. They're, they're owning the experience, they're going vertical. So I believe the opportunity here for manufacturers brands, and what I'm trying to convince, I work with 28 of the 100 largest consumer brands in the world. If you're P&G, Rolex, Nike, Samsung, I don't care who you are, and I work with all of them, you need to get into stores. You need to, you need, I wanted to get P&G and Unilever together to make a counterbid for Whole Foods. 
Mm-hmm. And they said, well, why would we do that? I said, well, one, you'd have access to these incredible purchase experience that would buttress the irrational margins you have on your brands. You'd have access to all these long tail brands, which is where all the growth is. And they said, but Amazon would just outbid us. I'm like, okay, fine. Start pissing on more fire hydrants, put Amazon on their heels, shoot a flare across their bow and make them pay more. But I think what you're going to see with all, Nike cannot support its irrational margins unless it goes from 10% to 30 or 40% of controlled distribution. Because mm-hmm. the relationship, the physical contact you have in a relationship, when you, that first handshake, that first kiss with an individual, if it goes really well, you're going to find their neuroses cute. You're going to find a way to get along with their parents. If it doesn't go well, everything they do is going to start to bother you and you're going to start thinking about kissing another brand. I need to remember this about all my relationships basically going forward. But uh, that's so interesting. Like I was really um, I, I was really surprised at first when Amazon bought Whole Foods. Like it seemed like such an unusual usual decision. Now, of course, with their Amazon Go stores where you could sort of, it's amazing technology where you can walk in, pick out some books, walk out, and it sort of automatically, you know, uh, charges your Amazon account. It's brilliant. I, I think every store is going to work like that. And I think Amazon ultimately will probably dominate the whole retail and even mall space. But um, something bothered me about the Whole Foods purchase just because it seems so like out there. Like why Whole Foods? But like it was great how now they're doing their classic Amazon thing, which is they're, they're cutting prices, which is Whole Foods was always, you know, there was always the joke, Whole Foods is whole check because they're so expensive. So they're cutting the prices to get rid of the stigma of Whole Foods. And then they're just going to start collecting data on all these people. Uh, and then eventually they'll turn it into uh, an Amazon Go type of experience and dominate groceries. And you point out how, how what a big percentage groceries are for, for retail. It's just a, a, an intelligent move. So I was I was ho- I was hoping you were giving me props on this. You know, the week before the acquisition, I predicted it on Recode. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, that's my claim to fame. Is I got lucky and I predicted the acquisition. How did you things. predict that? Oh gosh, Jim, this makes so much sense. This is obvious. This will be to that's so funny because I did not think it was obvious. Yeah, this will be to Facebook uh, what Instagram was. The, first off, you could shut the stores down and just use them as distribution centers and it would have justified the two and a half percent dilution Amazon made. They now have warehouses and supply chain relationships with all the long tail brands. And it's centered within two to three miles of probably 40 to 60% of every wealthy household in America. They basically just bought 10 years of time. They just fast forwarded their strategy to own your refrigerator by 10 years. It would have taken them 10 years to build out these warehouses. So with all of this, do you think in general, you know, uh, the value of commercial real estate is going to go way down in in general because you basically valuable value per square foot is going way down across all commercial real estate. You know, offices are getting decentralized. Um, situations like the you know distribution centers, like if Whole Foods mm-hmm. were to become all that's being highly um, uh, going to be highly more efficient. Uh, it makes me think that commercial the value of commercial real estate, which will then bleed into residential real estate, mm-hmm. is just going to go not crash, but just slide down forever. So I can answer that question. All I need is the zip code. Show me a zip code in an affluent neighborhood, and I'm going to show you commercial rents that outpace inflation for the next 30 to 50 years. Show yeah. me a zip code that's middle class. Look, store, stores, the rumor of the death of stores is greatly exaggerated. It's not that stores are dying. It's the middle class that's dying. 
So going to a middle class neighborhood where, where household income hasn't grown in thirty years, and I'll show I'll show you stores being boarded up. Show me Manhattan, Costa Mesa, San Francisco. I'll show you retail rents that have outpaced inflation for the last twenty or thirty years. Even one degree outside Red Hook, the real estate is booming because what are they doing? They're building warehouses for Amazon out there. So retail, you're going to see, we're going through a, a natural rationalization of square footage and retail. The percentage of mall space d- grew double the rate of population growth from 1970 to 2015. We have triple the per square feet per capita in the U.S. as we do in Britain and 50% more in Canada. So we're going through a cyclical rationalization of the number of square feet. But what we're going to see is more money per square foot. Mm-hmm. So if you own... If you own uh, uh, commercial real estate in the Inland Empire in, uh, uh, 40 miles outside of Los Angeles, yeah, that's rough. But if you own uh, commercial real estate in Santa Monica, you're fine. You should make a real estate hedge fund or something. <laughs> well, I'll, you know, General Growth Properties and Simon, who own all the high-end malls, they've lost a third of their value. They're going to be fine. So, uh, because they've been um, dro- you know, selling off their properties in lower-income they, they own, if you look at the where their malls are, they're in the most affluent neighborhoods in America. Mm-hmm. And those people are fine, more disposable income, and still doing 88% of their transactions through a store. I like how um, in the book you mentioned, you still can't figure out why Short Hills, uh, New Jersey, is so proud of the fact that they have like this high-end It's like their there. high school football team. Yeah. yeah. You meet anyone well, from, by the way, I used to shop there as a kid all the anyone time. Anyone from Short Hills go, it says, don't know, it's like, we have a mall. Have you been to our mall? I mean, it really is a source of regional pride there. Which, which, which let's say 50 years ago or 30 years ago, it, it would have showed the, the decline of kind of the uh, Main Street. You know, Main Street America is dead because it's replaced by Mall America, which is the shame that, you know, a town is proud of its mall. But it was just kind of funny that you point that out in the, in the book. Um so Scott Calloway, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really recommend your book, The Four, uh, and the subtitles, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, for a lot of reasons, not only to understand kind of the, the corporate history of these four companies at a very kind of high level, but also sort of the dangers and things to look out for and, and the predictive uh, ability of what that means when you understand these companies. But also I found it very interesting from a personal level how there's lessons of success in looking at the histories of these companies. I'll tell you um, I'll tell you one joke. When, I, when yeah. Amazon bought Whole Foods, yeah. the very first thing I was worried about was that they would combine immediately in this AI way their recommendation engine mm-hmm. inside Whole Foods. So I'll like shop for kale and I'll put kale in my thing and then suddenly a little window will pop up People who buy kale tend to go to aisle three to kill themselves. So that's what I was worried about. <laughs> that's your joke? That was my joke, yeah. <laughs> wow, okay. By the way, that well, joke's uh, never worked when I've used it, so no, take I, it for what it's worth. <laughs> I like it. So one quick fact on Amazon, the value of Kroger's, largest pure play grocery in America, declined 30% in between the time that Amazon announced the acquisition of Whole Foods and closed on it. Whole Foods is 111th the size of Kroger, and subsequently Amazon cut the price of salmon 30%. So salmon and the value of Kroger have each gone down 30% since the acquisition of Whole Foods by Amazon. That, that, you're, you're, that's more interesting than my joke. It's not that funny though, right? <laughs> well, you can make a punchline on it somehow. Um, all right, well, thanks again, Scott Galloway, Thank author of The Four. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for your time. Thank you.
That was fun. We're good? You, Is that you, what you're looking for? Yeah, yeah. You good. enjoy it? Yeah, yeah. You, you, you take a much more humanistic view of these things. But, I like but, that. You know, I, I think we dived into a lot of the corporate yeah. issues because I know yeah. the companies very well. I've, I've, yeah. I've, I'm speaking at Google in a month. I've, I've, I've been involved in every single one of these companies. So what's your gig now? Like, How do you make a living? What, what are you doing? Because I, uh, I, I think of you as sort of a, the stock analyst that I used to read about fin your financial analysis. Yeah, that could be because I used to write about Next time on The James Altucher Show. Seven and a half years ago, I got thyroid cancer. And the average life expectancy of somebody in my situation was 14 months. So let's look at like a best case scenario. You're looking at a maximum of three years. That's about right, yeah. When you first realized the full depth of what was happening, what was your first reaction? Immediately, everybody became very important to me. Immediately, time became super important to me. The desire to connect with the meaning overwhelmed the time I had for the meaningless. You know, life is just way too short to get paid to hang out with people you don't like. Can they ever make like, I don't know, robots the size of cells that just go through and find all the cells and patch them up? I mean, that's the science fiction, you know, the nanotech stuff. I don't know that they're anywhere close to doing something like that. <laughs> One thing that people always say to me is, you know, I can't imagine what it would be like to go through what you're going through. And to what I always say to them, neither can I. Like, my brain can't fathom it any more than your brain can. It's just this fact that is unimaginable. I now have three interviews coming out each week. Make sure not to miss even one by subscribing now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.